Open your Bibles up to Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, letter to the church of the Ephesians, chapter 2 this morning, verses 8 through 10, Ephesians chapter 2 and verses 8 through 10. You know, John 3.16 is probably the, the most well-known and beloved verse in, in the New Testament, I think. Virtually everybody who has had any introduction to Christianity doesn't take long before they find their way to John 3.16 and circle it in their Bible or highlight it or, or if you're a lady, probably put a little heart next to it or something like that to, to set it apart as the, the fact that uh, that's just such a wonderful and tremendous statement about the love of God in the gospel. But there is this uh, section before us this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, although not as well-known as John 3.16 and not as universally popular as John 3.16, for those who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, I think it has to rate right up there with it. This, these three verses, this passage of Scripture is, is just so powerful in its clearness and cogency and statement about the grace of God and salvation, what God has done for us in Christ and the reality of our salvation. And so this is what we're going to undertake this morning, but as we do that, I want to ask you a few questions to kind of prime the pump a little bit. Questions that are addressed in this text, questions that have historically been raised in the Christian church And they come up again with some regularity from time to time, from generation to generation over the last couple of thousand years. And they're raised and they're answered from this text and then they're raised again. So so maybe some of these questions you've thought about yourselves or maybe you've been asked these kinds of questions. For example, what role does works or human effort play in our salvation? What role does it play in our salvation? Or another question, what is saving faith? What is saving faith? How would you describe it? How would you answer that question? Another question, is saving faith always accompanied by good works? Is saving faith always accompanied by good works? Another question for you. What are the good works? What are the good works that Christians are supposed to engage in? What are they? So these are not insignificant questions, to be sure. They're, they're critical questions. and In fact, I would suggest they're life and death questions. And they're questions that are answered in this text before us this morning. These three power-packed verses contain one of the most compact and, as we say, identifiable gospel passages in the entire New Testament. And it takes up and answers these very, very important questions. So as we look at it together this morning, we'll find here three interlocking truths. Three interlocking truths without which there can be no salvation. And I'm calling them interlocking truths because they are all essential. Two out of three is not enough. All three must be there. They must be there. So let's take a look at each of these three interlocking truths in turn here. And we'll begin, a very, very simple outline, we'll begin with this. Salvation is provided by God. That's the first interlocking truth. Salvation is provided by God. Let me give you all three up front so you know where we're going. Salvation is provided by God, first truth. Secondly, salvation precludes human effort. Salvation precludes human effort. And then third, salvation produces a changed life. So now you know where we're going. Salvation is provided by God. Salvation precludes human effort. And salvation produces a changed life. These are the critical interlocking truths. So here we go. Salvation is provided by God, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that 
not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Paul is emphasizing here the utterly free nature of salvation. And that is entirely of God's doing. Without any contribution of human effort at all. It is the gift of God, he says. Now the reason, just in context here, that God demonstrates his gracious character in verse 7. You remember we ended there last time. That he, he demonstrates the graciousness of his character in the age to come. And the reason he can do that is... Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved. Notice verse 8 begins there with the the word for, and it it provides a reason. It it connects to the flow of what's been going on. Often when we we look at this section, verses 8, 9, and normally we only look at 8 and 9 of Ephesians 2, we sort of lift it out of its context and we lose the flow of the thought. And I think when we lose the flow of the thought, we lose the power of the argument. Paul says, looking back up to, to uh, verse 5, he says, When we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. And then parenthetically inserts, for by, gra- or by grace you have been saved. He picks up the thought again here in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved. We have these bookends, this, the, these markers that, that, that stand on either side of what God has done. God has made us alive together with Christ, verse 6. He has raised us up with Christ. He has seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in order that he might demonstrate for all of eternity his riches of his grace and his kindness towards us. Why? Because by grace you have been saved through faith. That it's all of grace from beginning to end. The only thing we do contribute... To our salvation is the need for it, is the need for it. Now, what is salvation? Often, we, be, we just immediately think about forgiveness. Salvation, forgiveness. And forgiveness is a wonderful thing, to be sure, but it is not the totality of our salvation. It is not simply that we are sinners forgiven. It is so much more than that. So much richer than that. So much more powerful than that. It is literally life from the dead. Verses uh, chapter 2 and and verse 1, right? You were dead in your trespasses and sin. It is life from the dead. It is freedom from enslavement. Verses 2 and 3. It is freedom from enslavement. It is freedom from the enslavement of the world. Freedom from enslavement to the devil. Freedom from enslavement to our, to our fleshly lusts that, that drive or, or once drove us. Indeed, what is salvation? It is, the, it is the totality of our life in union with Christ. It is the totality of our life in union with Christ. Raised up with him. Seated with him in the heavenlies. Live together with him. This is the salvation. This is what it means when he says, for by grace you have been saved. You have been united to Christ, we could say. By grace you have been united with Christ. In other words, that all that Christ has is now yours in union with him. And Paul says that this salvation, it is the product of God's grace. It is the product of his grace. What is grace? What is grace? Well, if we were to boil it down very simply, grace, we could say, is this. God's undeserved favor. It is God's undeserved favor. By God's undeserved favor, you, this morning, if you are a a Christian, if you are a disciple and follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are united to Christ by God's undeserved favor. It is the basis, it is the cause of your salvation, the grace of God. Paul, notice he says, for by grace you have been saved. And then he says, through faith. Through faith. In other words, that that faith is the means by which this salvation is appropriated. It is by grace, God's undeserved favor, through faith. By grace, through faith, united to Jesus Christ, and thus has the life of Christ in your soul. You thus have salvation. You have salvation. 
So that raises a question, if, if it is by faith that this grace is appropriated, what is faith? What is faith? Well, in its simplest form, faith, pistis in the Greek, is, is believing something to be true and acting upon that truth. It is believing something to be true and then acting upon that truth. It carries the idea, the, the noun form, faith. It carries the idea of faithfulness or, or reliability, confidence. The verbal form translated in the English, believing, pistuo in the Greek. It means to, to trust in or to give credence to or to be convinced of or to, be, to have confidence in. So it's a, it's a, it's a combining together of these, of these ideas and, and to rely on something, to believe something to be reliable. So to believe it to be reliable and then to rely upon it. That's faith. You could, um, you could be in your car, you know, driving out there on the 10 freeway and, and there's the, uh, the interchange that, to get on to go on the 15 north, and, and that's, that interchange is really high, right? It takes you way up and around and, and down onto the freeway. And you could be driving along, and you could, you could uh, believe that that, that that overpass is uh, solid and secure, right? You could, everybody in the car, you could say to them, don't worry, that, that's uh, secure. But you wouldn't have faith. You would have faith when you take the exit and you actually drive your vehicle up and onto that overpass that's probably 100 feet above the, you know, the, the highway below. That's when faith becomes faith. It's, it's to believe something to be reliable and then to act upon that belief. That's faith. So what does it mean here biblically? It means to, to recognize our hopeless condition as, as Paul has outlined it here for us in the first three verses of this chapter. To, to recognize, to believe that it is true, and to believe beyond that that God has offered us relief to that through Jesus Christ and then embracing that reality and depending your entire future, present and future, upon the truth. One writer said that, that faith has an adhesive quality to it in that it, it binds the believer to the one who is believed. It sticks you to them. If you, if you have faith in Christ, you are stuck to Christ. You are stuck to him. Maybe I can illustrate this reality of faith from my own conversion. As a high school and, and college student, I considered myself an atheist for a number of years and took actually great delight in antagonizing all those who claim to have faith. And um, that's another story for another time. Uh, Christians, you need to get way better with your apologetics. Okay, let me just, you know, just tell you that from someone who was once a skeptic. But be that as it may, through amazing circumstances, uh, I was not looking for God. God came looking for me, and it, I was introduced to a, to a guy who who. Uh, through a relationship, he, he gave me a New Testament to read, and I began to read the New Testament. And, and from the reading of the New Testament, I became persuaded that God was. That God was. I also became persuaded that, that sin was real. And that sinners went to hell. Rightfully so. Unless... Because God sent his son into the world to, to die in the place of sinners, and, and I believe that too. So you, you might say, well, you believe that God is, you, you know, believe sin is real, you believe sinners go to hell, you believe that Jesus came and died to forgive people from their sin, well, you'd be a Christian. No. No, I wouldn't be a Christian. And I wasn't a Christian. Because there was still something missing. I had... I had an understanding, but I didn't have faith. What was missing from my life was that I had not yet come to the place where I had been brought face to face with my own dreadful condition. I, I believe that sinners were under the, the condemnation of God in a general sense. What I didn't believe was that I was under the condemnation of God. 
I believe that Jesus came and died to, to pardon sinners in a general sense. What I had not yet come to was an understanding that he had come and died for me. And it was only when God, through his Holy Spirit, took the blinders off my eyes that, that in a moment of time I came to realize that all that I believed was true was actually really true, and it was true in my specific case. And it was at that time, it was at that time that I believed savingly on the Lord Jesus Christ, that I exercised the faith and appropriated the grace of God in the gospel that had been made available to me. Now, just taking a look here at verse 8, there's often a question that, that arises in people's minds where Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. What is the gift of God? It is the gift of God. What does the it refer to? Well, it refers back to that which is not of yourselves. Well, that's not particularly helpful, right? It is the gift of God. Well, what's the it? The it is the that. So what's the that? Right? You have been saved by grace through faith and that, not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. So the that is a gift of God. So what does the that refer to? What is the antecedent to which the that refers? Is it the faith to embrace God's grace? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that grace is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Is that what Paul is saying? Or is it a reference to something else? Now, historically, going back even to the ancient fathers, the church fathers, there, there's, there's a very common and, and prevailing idea that the that refers to grace, or to faith. You have been saved by grace through faith, and that faith is a gift of God. In other words, that the faith to believe the gospel is a gift of God and a gift of his grace. Very, very common, very popular. You even find it today. And there's a lot of, lot of strong reasons why that could very well be true. However, grammatically, there is a problem. There's a grammatical problem here, and the, and the grammatical problem is this. The pronoun that is in the neuter, and... Faith is in the feminine. So if the, if the, if the pronoun is referring to the, to the noun before that, it, it should be in the same gender, and it's not. And grace is not, is a, is a feminine gender as well. So that is neutral, or, or neuter rather, and, and faith and grace are feminine. So, so grammatically, it probably doesn't refer to that. So what does that mean? Well, what that means is, is that the more likely referent to the that is salvation, the concept of salvation itself, which is included in this verse. And in fact, in the margin of your New American Standard Bible, you'll probably see that. You'll probably see a margin note next to verse 8 where it says, i.e., that salvation. In other words, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that salvation is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I think that's right, actually. I think that's what Paul, the point he's making here, is that your salvation is a gift from God. A gift from God. So therefore, if that's right, if that's the true understanding of the text, does that mean that, that faith is not a gift of God? This is very important to some people. Well, the answer is, um, and I forgot how I asked the question, so I've got to be careful how I answer it. So let me start the question again. Is, does this, does, does, um, since verse 8 likely does not mean that faith is the gift of God that Paul's referring to, does that mean then that faith is not a gift of God? No. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. This is just not, probably not, stated that way here in this verse. Elsewhere in Scripture, faith is spoken of as a gift of God. For example, in Acts chapter 18 and verse 27, where there it says, he, that is Apollos, he, 
helped greatly those who had believed through grace. They had believed through grace. In other words, their belief, their exercise of faith came through grace. Faith is a grace gift. Or another in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, where Paul writes there, For to you it has been granted to believe in him. Right? For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. But let's just pick up the two phrases that are linked together here. For to, for to you it has been granted to believe in him. It has been granted. It has been given. It is a gift. It is a gift. So not explicitly taught here, I don't believe, in, in verse 8 of Ephesians 2. It is still consistent with Scripture to understand faith as a gift of God. Faith is the gift of God. It is a gift of God's grace by which people believe the gospel. I mean, the truth of that is really kind of plain, isn't it? Because if, if verses 1 through 3 are true, if you're dead and, and bound under the, you know, the world, the flesh, and the devil, then where is this faith? going to come from to believe the gospel. Not only that, in 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 4, Paul says that the, um, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, right? So, so where is the faith going to come from? It has to come from God. And by the way, you believe this. If you pray for anyone's salvation, you believe this. When you ask God, please save someone, what are you really asking him to do? Aren't you asking him to, to, to grant them faith, to believe that he might save them? That's what it means to pray. We're asking God to do something that humans can't do by themselves. So, first interlocking truth, simply this. Salvation is provided by God. Secondly, salvation precludes human effort. Paul continues here in verse 9. This gift of God, salvation, the gift of God, verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul continues here, he's reinforcing the God's singular role in salvation, and he specifically excludes any notion that salvation is the result of human effort in any way, shape, or form. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. You are united with Christ by grace, through faith, one with the Savior, not as a result of your works. This is the consistent message of the New Testament. Romans chapter 11, verse 6, Paul says, If it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. They are, they are the antithesis of one another. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Not according to our works. Or my favorite, Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. Mankind is obsessed with the idea that salvation is a cooperative effort. Absolutely obsessed with that idea. Yet Paul very clearly states that salvation is not a result of human effort, no matter how religious or how noble that effort might be. This was the problem of Israel. This was the problem of Israel. Israel believed that God's election plus their obedience to the Torah 
would guarantee God's end-time verdict. They were elect, and they would obey the Torah, and that would guarantee their stand in the judgment at the end. Paul refutes that Jewish error in Galatians, specifically chapter 2 and verse 16. Here he, he broadens it. He's writing to a predominantly Gentile audience here, and he, and he broadens it to include any reliance on human effort at all. If it's of grace, it is not of works. It is, if it includes works, it is not of grace. They are oil and water. They do not mix. Why? Because Paul recognizes that if any human effort is allowed to creep into the gospel, then ultimately it destroys the gospel. Why? Because it transfers glory from God to man. Right? Look again, verse 9. Not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. The transferring of glory from God, the creator, to man, the creature, is is sort of the the fundamental foundation of sin and depravity, right? That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18 and following, right? They did not give God glory. And it resulted in all kind of manifest depravity and error. So to allow any human effort... To creep into the gospel is to ultimately sow the seeds of the gospel's own destruction. Now this idea of boasting is, for Paul, a very important point. It's just who you boast in that makes all the difference. He's not saying there can be no boasting. What he says is there can be no boasting in human achievement, human effort. All boasting, all legitimate boasting, has to be in what God has done. For example, over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 28 and following, Paul says there, writing about the believers, he says, The base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are so that no man may boast before God. God specifically chooses those that that are worthy of all rejection and condemnation. Why? So that any boasting that occurs has to be in what God has done. Right, But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul would have us boast. He would have you be a very boastful person this morning. Okay, Sermon application. Go out of here boasting. Just don't boast in yourself. But boast in what God has done for you in Christ. Bring all glory to God the Father, right? Beloved, this very simple truth, that it is by grace through faith, not of works, not as a result of works, right? Is a very profound truth. It is simple, yet it is profound. And what it does is it really separates all of human religion into two categories. There is biblical Christianity and there is everything else. Everything else. There is biblical Christianity in which there is no reliance upon human effort in salvation. It is all of God. God provides the gift of salvation. And there is everything else, some of which has a teensy-weensy little bit of human effort, and some that is virtually all human effort, right? This is what separates biblical Christianity from Roman Catholicism. It is the role of works in salvation. You talk to someone who is 
who is knowledgeable and steeped in Roman Catholic theology, and they will say that God, we are saved by grace. They will say that because they believe that. What they won't say is through faith alone or by faith alone. The Mormons, same way. Jehovah's Witnesses, same way. Liberal Protestants, same thing. Muslims, same thing. Jews, same thing. It's the role of works. Where does it fall in the equation? Is the difference between heaven and hell. The great rallying cry of the Protestant Reformation was sola fide. Sola fide, by faith alone. By faith alone. You will meet many, many people who will be ready to and be willing to say that God saves by grace through faith. What they won't be willing to say is alone. Is alone. Salvation is provided by God. Second interlocking truth, salvation precludes human effort. Third, salvation produces a changed life. This is where the evangelical church is weak. This is where we're weak. We love Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And we forget about verse 10. But salvation produces a changed life. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Notice the conjunction for again. You see it? For we are his workmanship. That tells you that there's still a connection in the thoughts going on here. Yeah, there's a period after verse 9, but but we're not in a new paragraph with a new thought. There's a connection here. The reason, Paul's just continuing, the reason he's providing here why salvation cannot be of human origin or human works is because, the word for you could replace with because, right? We are not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, because we are his workmanship. You can't boast if you're God's workmanship. It would be like the potter, or excuse me, the clay boasting above the potter, right? It is the potter who can boast, not the pot. Now this, this verse here, verse 10, literally in the Greek, it begins with the pronoun his, it would read, for his workmanship we are. Stronger that way. Not as all the work, so that no one would boast, because his workmanship we are. Why can't you boast in your salvation? Because it's been provided by God, and you are his workmanship. You are his workmanship. The word workmanship, poema, the, the Greek word here, it It's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, to to denote God's creation work. It's used that way in Psalm 91, verse 4, Psalm 142, verse 5. And that's the same basic nuance that the word uh, carries in its only other poema, its only other usage here in the New Testament. Back in, uh, turn to Romans 1. You can just see it here. Romans 1 and verse 20. It's the only other place the word appears So Romans 1, verse 20, it says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been, there's your word, made. So that they are without excuse. So it's a creation context in Romans 1.20. I believe it's a creation context here in Ephesians 2.10. In other words, Just as God created the heavens and the earth without human participation, so in Christ we are his new creative work. We are a new creation, right? A new creation. Beloved, when God saves, 
he transforms. In other words, he, he spiritually creates or recreates people into something new. In Adam, right, the old man in Adam, united in Adam, now in salvation, right, we are what? United in Christ. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. When you go from being in Adam to in Christ, something new has happened. There has been a recreation. A recreation. And it's a creation that is, that is oh so different, right? As different as the dead is from the living. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man is in Christ... You could take in Christ and you could replace it with salvation. But if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. It is just as, it is just as um, uh, stark a difference as, as there was formless, you know, he, he spoke it into existence, right? It came from nothing and he spoke it into existence. It's that kind of reality. And this new creation occurs, notice again verse 10, in union with Christ. For we are his workmanship. We are his creation created in Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. So the goal, right, where it says for good works, the the goal of the purpose of the new creation, which is formed by our union with Christ, is to live out good works. Why did God save you? So that you might live out good works that he has foreordained, right? Planned for you. Look at verse 10. Which he prepared beforehand so that you would walk in them. In other words, they were planned and they were prepared for you from before the foundation of the world, according to chapter 1 and verse 4. You were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. So why were you, why did God save you? He saved you so that you would produce good works. So you would produce good works. Notice, by the way, the, the, the change, the, the, the dramatic nature of the change that occurs in salvation. So, uh, verse 10 again, right? Uh, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, or for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Then notice where it says, so that we would walk in them. Do you see that? So that we would walk in them. If you go back to verse 2, Paul talks about walking there as well. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked. So there's a contrast going on here. Basically, everybody's walking. Everybody's walking. You're either walking in the old life, right? You're living the old life, or you're living the new life. Everybody's living a life. Everybody's walking. And there's a sharp, sharp contrast between what it means to to walk the new life in Christ and the old life. In fact, over in chapter 4, just let you turn over there quick to chapter 4. Pick it up in verse 17. Right? Chapter 4, you remember way back when we overviewed this book. Chapter 4 begins with the the duties of the Christian life, right? 1 to 3 lays out the doctrine, the theological foundation from which the new life the ethical realities of the new life spring. So here he says in verse 17, So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you no longer, there's your word again, walk, though that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk, check it out, in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart, and they have become callous, given over to them, and have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Again, it's, it's, just, it's a commentary on chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. So you have been saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves, lest anybody would boast. You've been created in chapter, uh, verse 2, you've been created in 
Christ Jesus as God's new creation for a purpose. The purpose is that you no longer live like you used to live. Prior to Christ, we were driven and we were devoted to the pursuit of our own pleasure. We were seeking to live autonomously to Christ, to our Creator. Now, this, this truth, this reality about human nature, you know, when you find someone engaged in something that's overtly and manifestly evil, is sort of kind of easy to understand. Or becomes a little more difficult is when you think about those good individuals. Right? What about people who are, who are philanthropic? You know, they're, they're just going around. They're, you know, they're like little angels of mercy. They're going around doing good things all the time for people. I don't want to minimize that. I mean, legitimately, good stuff. Some make incredible sacrifices in order to serve and care for other people, right? So what about them? Is this truth for them too? The answer is yes. I mean, in the final analysis... In the final analysis, the the best specimen of humanity outside of Christ is ultimately seeking after their own glory. They're seeking after their own glory. They're seeking after their own reputation, their own self-esteem, probably some kind of auto-salvation sort of thing. Now, it may be very difficult to see that because you can't see the motives and I can't see the motives. But God sees the motives. God knows the heart. And he has revealed it. And so we have to rely on the scripture here when we're, when we're addressing this question. And, and this question comes up. Are, are you saying, and you know, I'll go on record and say it, are you saying Mother Teresa didn't go to heaven? Yes, that's what I'm saying. That Mother Teresa based on everything that I have read about her, denies the gospel of grace through faith alone. She embraces Roman Catholic theology, and if she embraces Roman Catholic theology, no, Mother Teresa did not go to heaven. A lot of evangelical churches can't handle that truth. And the reason they can't handle it is they are so poorly schooled in the gospel. So poorly schooled in the gospel. What does Paul say in Romans chapter 3, verse 12? There is none who does good, no, not one. When Paul says there is no one who does good, what he means is there is no one who is morally upright when measured by God's standards. He is not saying that there is no one who does any good thing. What he is saying is that no one in and of themselves is morally upright before God. As Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, right? You shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We all admit no one is perfect. Or when the rich young ruler came to Jesus and, and said, Good teacher, and Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There's no one good but God alone, right? Mark 10 verse 18. So properly understood, all people violate God's Ten Commandments in thought, word, and deed and need to be saved and need to be saved by the grace of God through faith alone. Now when God saves, immediately a new life begins. You can't be saved And be here. To be saved is to be united with Christ. To be united with Christ puts you here. It puts you here. It's as dramatic as as death to life. It's the new creation. What that means is that, that immediately the focus and direction of our life changes. Immediately. We immediately begin to engage in good works. The good works that God has planned for us, right? Verse 10, prepared for us. Immediately we begin in that. 
Now, the progress, granted, the progress may be very slow and it may be very intermittent. And that's true for all of us. But it cannot be absent. It cannot be absent. Because good works are both the intended result and the attestation of our salvation. So that, he says, we would walk in them. One commentator said, quote, Good works are indispensable to salvation, not as its ground or means, however, but as its consequence and evidence. If there are no good works, there is no salvation. Now, what are these good works? If they are so huge, so critical, what in the world are they? And and I think a lot of people are mystified by this. How do I know? But it's not a mystery. It's it's really not a mystery. And beyond beyond that, the, the good works that were foreordained for you in Christ are not individual or unique. You don't have to worry about like, oh, maybe there's some special things that that God has foreordained for me, and if I miss it, no. No, I think in the context of this letter, actually, the good works that have been prepared before the foundation of the world for us are laid out for us in chapters 4 through 6. I think that's how the letter fits together. Exactly what God foreordained for you as the evidence of your salvation, as the consequence of your new life in Christ, are laid out in in black and white for you in chapters 4 through 6. It's not a mystery. So what are they? Let's just review them quickly. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It is humility and gentleness. Right? Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. It is humility and gentleness which leads to unity. Right, Verse 3, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. If you are in Christ Jesus this morning, in other words, if you are saved, then God has prepared for you the good work of humility and gentleness to for the purpose of preserving the unity of the local body of Christ. It is an evidence and attestation of your saving commitment or union with Christ that your life is characterized by such things. Again, not perfectly. He goes on in verses 7 to 16 here, and he, he talks about the growth in sound doctrine. Right, where he says, um, verse 13, We attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we're no longer the children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, speaking the truth in love, grow up into all aspects, into him who is the head, from whom the whole body right, is fitted together, and it builds itself up. So, saving faith is attested by a growth in doctrine for the purpose of producing love for God and for his people. If you have no interest in the things of God, if you have no interest in reading your Bible, if you have no interest in knowing God better, Something is wrong. Maybe something is is, um, eternally wrong. He goes on, verse 25, and I'm just picking a few out here. But another good work that's been foreordained for the for the children of God, is to be honest and truthful. Verse 25, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. 
Honesty and truthfulness is a good work for ordained for the people of God. We are to be an honest and truthful people. Why? Because lying is from who? The father of lies. So how can we possibly be new in Christ and participate in the behavior of the father of lies? Again, intermittent, slow, you know, fall down, get up, etc. Yes, but there has to be a change. He continues in verse 29 and to the end of the chapter there, and he talks about using our mouths to build up people and not tear them down. Right? Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. New in Christ, new way of speaking. New in Christ, new vocabulary. New in Christ, new orientation for our speech. To build up others, not to tear them down. He goes on. Verse 32, kindness and forgiveness. Right? These are, these are the good works that have been foreordained to us. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So these are not optional. These are not optional things. These are actually the characteristics of the new creation, of, the, of his workmanship to be made in Christ. Chapter 5, verses 3 through 5 is, is about sexual purity in, in thought and word and deed. Right? Formerly, Paul says back in chapter 2 there, right, we were driven by our lusts. Verse 3. Now, he says, it's, it's to be pure in the way we think and pure in the way we speak and pure in, in how we conduct ourselves sexually. And then my favorite, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 5 and, and carrying all the way through verse 9 of chapter 6, because it's all one big section, is spirit-filled living. Right? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like to be filled with the Spirit? Paul then details it out for us. What is it like to be filled with the Spirit? Well, verse 19, it's to sing. <laughs> it's to sing biblical truth to God and each other. By the way, if you, if you need a biblical reason why you ought to come here and sing on Sunday morning, right? you, you claim Christ, you need to sing. And the reason you need to sing is because it is a demonstration and, and outworking of an exchanged life, of a new life in Christ. So sing. And sing loud enough that I can hear you. Because again, look what it says, right? Speaking to one another. Do you see that? Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody with your heart to the Lord. Melody is for the Lord. The words are for me. I want to hear you loud. I sit down front because you don't want to hear me. <laughs> but I am loud. You'll ask the guys up here on the stage. I am loud. It encourages us. We sing to encourage one another in the truth. It's part of the exchange life, it's part of the new life in Christ. Verse 20 is to be thankful, right? Always giving thanks for all things. It's to be thankful and contented. And then beginning in verse 22 and running away all the way through chapter 6 and verse 9, it's about being submissive to authority. This is what it means to have the new life in Christ, is to be submissive to authority. That's husbands and wives, parents and children, masters and slaves. For those who wield authority, it's to wield it with, with a, a sense of, uh, of humility and love, not to be overbearing in it. Now, Paul would say that it is no burden to walk in these things because this is our new nature in Christ. Christ. 
God has prepared this path for us. He's calling us to follow the path, and he enables us to follow the path through his indwelling spirit. But I am terrible with directions, and I'm not alone. Right? We stray from the path, don't we? We find the pull of that old man strong. Former patterns of thought, former patterns of speech, sort of bodily appetites, they draw us back. That's when Paul says you need to put off that old man and put on the new. Not become something new, you are new. But I need to live like I'm who I really am. And when I fail, I repent of my sin. And I ask God to restore the fellowship with me, to forgive me. And I get up and I begin to walk in the path again. Since this is an area of relative weakness, I think, for the evangelical church, this whole understanding of works, let me just kind of wrap this up this morning for you with some some math. All, right. All religions have an ethical component to them. They have an ethical component. In other words, all religious expressions have some form of how we are to live and behave. They all have an ethical component. The difference between biblical Christianity and all the rest of them is on which side of the equation the good works are placed. Okay, I told you it was math. You really can boil it down to that. You can, you can boil it all down to a simple equation, and it's where, you know, to the left or the right of the equation does you put these good works that are required. If we get them on the wrong side of the equation, we have no salvation. So we can't, we can't compromise on this. This is really, really important. So what I've got for you is um, just a little chart. I think, I think they'll put it up here on the screens. And I've, I've used the word justification. This is not new with me. I borrowed this out of a book. I use the word justification, and, and it just means to be declared right with God. So there are basically four possibilities of how the equation could be arranged, but, but there's only one that's right. So here they are. Our works equals our justification. This is the, this is the notion of, uh, of our God weighs us on a, on a, on a balanced scale, right? And, and if, the, if the good works outweigh the bad works, then we're good, right? We're in. We're justified by God. That's the, and that's a common notion in America. That's not a common notion in the world, by the way. That's a common notion in America, because we have convinced ourselves that we are fundamentally good. And I think we've convinced ourselves we are fundamentally good because we are presently wealthy. And wealthy people don't want to consider the possibility that they are not fundamentally good. So, works equals justification. False. But you already knew that, right? You already knew that. Next possible way it is the formula is put together is, is faith plus works equals justification. This is, this is world religion. This is all the world's religions. We talked about this earlier. I mean, maybe a small amount of works, you know, teeny, teeny, teeny little bit, or it may be a massive amount, but it's, but it's faith plus works by which we are justified. You can put all the world's religions in that basket. That's false. That's false. The third is that faith equals justification minus works. Meaning that all I got to do is give mental assent to some truths and say, I believe it, and I'm good. This characterizes a scarily large portion of the evangelical church in America. America. 
This is the, I professed Jesus when I was young. I was baptized. I walked the aisle. I said a prayer. You know, I was four years old, and I remember my mom told me I prayed by her knee, and I'm good. And in the meantime, my life is indistinguishable from the Adamic life. You are not good. You are not good. You are in very, very, very serious trouble and self-deceived. So faith equaling justification without any work is false. The justified sinner, the saved sinner, produces good works. That's what Paul says, right? Take a look at it again, because we need to make sure we get this right. For we are his creation, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of or for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. This is God's foreordained reality for us. To be new in Christ is to engage in a new life. Spelled out for us in chapters 4 through 6 and other places. So it's false. Fourth, and finally, faith equals justification plus works. Saving faith is salvation resulting in the new life in Christ, manifest in changed behavior. By the way, moms and dads, raising those kids at home, this is huge for you. You really need a good grasp on this. Because you need to know where your kids are, spiritually. And I think the danger is to assume them to be Christian because they have been socialized to the gospel. They know the, lyri- the lyrics to the songs. They know the Bible verses. They've been through the Awana ministry, right? They're perfect attendance in Sunday school. And yet, and yet, they do not possess saving Faith. They are not relying on Christ alone. Maybe that's some of you out here this morning. Maybe you wouldn't have articulated it that way of, you know, yeah, it's, it's faith and, you know, I'm relying on Jesus plus. Probably wouldn't have said that. But if you look inside and you're honest with yourself, is that true? Is it true? When you stand before Christ someday, what will you say? Why should I take you into heaven? What will you say? Let's pray. Our Father, in, uh, in preaching a message like this and, and making such an emphasis upon the good works, I'm always a little nervous that somehow someone would misunderstand what I'm saying or I would misspeak. And then in the process, I would get good works on the wrong side of the equation. Oh, Lord, I pray that if any of that misunderstanding is out there right now, that you would sweep it away. For certainly there is no human effort involved at all. There is nothing we can do. There is no good in us, not now, not in the past, and nor will there ever be, that would incline you to us, that would merit your grace for us. Father, not even faith, For that, too, is your gift. Salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end. And, oh, God, I'm so glad that it's that way. For if any part of it depended upon me, all would be lost. Lord, may your Holy Spirit press the truth of the words this morning 
deep into our hearts. For that one sitting out here whose status before you with Christ is uncertain. Uncertain in their own mind. They don't really know where they stand. They look at their own lives and and they see nothing but contradiction. Oh Lord, may you press the truth in on them. Pull the blinders away. Let not anyone falsely trust in a profession of faith, for it is the possession of faith that saves. And Father, for that one here who is a child of God but is struggling in sin, I pray that this message would not be received as condemnation but as a lifeline to recognize that this is not who they are if they are new in Christ. That these behaviors, these thoughts, these words are vestiges of the old man. And may you strengthen their faith in the truth of the gospel and their new position in Christ through the power of your indwelling spirit and that truth actuated in them even now in this place. And and Father, rescue them from the mud and the mire. May they repent. May they flee to the cross of Christ for cleansing. O Lord, in our testimony and witness before a watching world, we need to get this right. So help us. Help us, Lord, to to be proficient in the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. All glory be to Christ. Amen and amen.